Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, and to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we find ourselves here in verses 21 through 26 today. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Let me ask you to stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Now, this is the word of God. Let's give it our attention. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder if you have ever had that experience where you thought you understood the lyrics of a song. Uh, and then one day you realized that you had it all wrong and you'd been singing the song wrong your entire life. Well, a few years ago, that happened to me with Wesley's famous carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In the third verse of that popular hymn, we sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, Hail the Son of Righteousness. And I had just always assumed that because these were so very clearly references to Christ as the Prince of Peace and as the Son of Righteousness, that the lyric was, Hail the Son, S-O-N, of Righteousness. Maybe some of you are going, wait, it's not that? It's not. It's Hail the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. And the remainder of that verse that we sing makes it very clear. Because light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. I failed to realize that Wesley was playing on this word son. And he's actually quoting from the Old Testament and from this particular messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy from Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 where the prophet says, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall on the day when I act, says the Lord. It's a prophecy of that coming day of the Lord a day of blessing and of judgment, that day when God himself would come and he would act on behalf of his people to save them from their enemies. 
In fact, that prophecy in Malachi 4 is the same prophecy that John the Baptist quotes from concerning Jesus. And it's the same prophecy that Jesus quotes from concerning John when he says that John will be like Elijah the prophet. John would be that herald who would announce the coming day of the Lord and the rising up of the Son of Righteousness that brought light and life to all who feared his name. It's clear that Malachi, in doing this, was himself echoing the language of the law and of the prophets that had come before him. For example, in Jeremiah 23, the Lord is called the Lord our righteousness. And there are many places where the coming of the Messiah is referred to like the dawning and the rising of the sun. In 2 Samuel 23, for example, it speaks of the son of David, the king, as he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. We probably remember Isaiah's wonderful words, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And how could we forget on this day the prophetic words of Mary herself in the Magnificat because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit you from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a beautiful picture that the coming of Christ is like the dawning of the sun that brings light and life righteousness and peace. As I was reflecting on that uh, this week and, and thinking about how to help illustrate it with you, I couldn't help but think about sunflowers. You might think that's an odd shift. Have you ever considered why we call them sunflowers? We call them sunflowers because they possess uh, this unique quality that when sunflowers are growing, they grow with their faces always toward the sun. The scientific term for this is heliotropism. It comes from two Greek words, helio, which means sun, and tropism, which means turning. They turn towards the sun. Every morning, young sunflower plants turn their face toward the east, and then they literally, throughout the day, trace the sun across the sky. If you do a time-lapse a video of them, you can watch them turning with their faces toward the sun. And then somewhat mysteriously, but according to God's plan and providence, during the cold of the night, they turn their faces back toward the east, and they wait for the sunrise. It's in the sun that they find what they need for life and growth. That's true of us as Christians. As Christians, we turn our faces toward that Son of Righteousness, toward Jesus himself, the one who brings light and life. We might call it a Christotropism, or as our Reformed Fathers confessed, we might just say that our salvation is in Christ alone. Last week, we spoke about the great importance of the passage before us today. Nowhere do we see more clearly our need for the Son of Righteousness to rise with healing in His wings. And we talked about how important this passage is for understanding the good news of the gospel that comes to us in Christ. 
It's so important because Paul has just been arguing that none of us, no one, can be justified according to the works of the law. None of us has done what God has required. But here, this passage shows us so clearly the true way of righteousness, a righteousness that has now been manifested apart from the law. It's a righteousness that the law and the prophets were always bearing witness to, but now has become so clear in the rising of the Son of Righteousness and in His light. And so last week we talked about uh, how this righteousness actually comes to us. That this righteousness comes to us by grace alone, and it comes to us through faith alone. That is to say that this righteousness comes to us, as Paul says, by God's grace as a gift. This righteousness is a gift to you. It is not because of anything that you have done or could do. You do not merit it. You do not earn it. It does not come to you as what is owed or as what is your due. It comes to you by His grace as a gift. And yet, though it is a gift, it is not a gift that we receive by our works. It is a gift that we receive through faith. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Even there, though, I made that really important point. I hope you remember it, but just in case you forgot, I'm going to tell you again this morning that, in fact, though we speak of being saved by faith, that's not properly true. It is not our faith that saves us. It is Christ who saves us. Faith is simply the instrument that God uses to bring us to Jesus. We are saved by a person. If we were saved by our faith, how could we ever know that we had enough faith? We are not saved by our faith, great or small. We are saved by the object of our faith. That is to say that it is not about our great faith. It is about our great Savior, the Son of Righteousness, who rises with light and life to all those who turn their faces and look to Him. And so, if last week we talked then about how we receive this righteousness, that it's by grace alone and it is through faith alone, today we need to nail in on the fact that it is in Christ alone. This righteousness comes to us in Christ alone. And today, as we think about this, Paul uses these three wonderful and and magnificent words to help us describe and understand this gift of righteousness. You'll see it there in the passage. He says that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. They are three of the biggest theological words in the New Testament, all crammed into one verse. And you may not even understand what these words mean, but they're important words. They're they're big words, big not just because they are long, but big because they are packed and pregnant with so much significance. So much meaning. 
They help us to understand what Christ has done. And you'll also notice that these three words are sort of drawn as metaphors from three different domains or spheres of life. That first word, justification, is a judicial term. It's borrowed from the sphere of the law court. The second term, redemption, is a term of deliverance that's taken from the realm of the prison or the realm of captivity. And the third word, propitiation, is a term of atonement that is taken from the realm of the temple. And it's with these three words that Paul summarizes this wonderful gift of righteousness that comes to us in Christ. And so this morning, as we turn our faces toward the sun now, I hope that we will come to understand better these words. And we'll, we'll use these words to help guide our thinking as we think about our justification in Christ, our redemption in Christ, and our propitiation in Christ. First, our justification in Christ. What is justification? Justification is a technical term, but it's easy enough to understand. Basically, it's this term, as I've said, it's borrowed from the court of law, and it refers to a legal pronouncement or declaration on the part of a judge. If a person has been charged with a crime, they may be brought before a judge who will decide their fate. And if the evidence proves they're guilty, then a righteous judge will declare them guilty, and he will condemn them to their sentence. But if the evidence, on the other hand, does not prove their guilt, but in fact proves their innocence, proves even their righteousness, then the judge will justify them, or sometimes we will say he will acquit them. He will declare them not guilty, and he will set them free. Now, when you take this judicial metaphor and you apply it to the case of our salvation, it refers to our acceptance and our acquittal before the bar of God's justice for our sins. It is God's declaration as the judge of all the world that we are accounted and reckoned as not guilty, but rather as righteous in his sight. That is what it means to be justified. Paul will say in the next chapter to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted unto righteousness. The gospel is that God counts sinners as though they were righteous. He pardons us, he forgives us, and he accepts us as righteous, even though we are not. I suppose many of you are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism's beautiful definition of this term, that justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us and received by faith alone. But of course, as soon as we spell out justification in these terms, it raises this important question. How is this possible? How is this possible and how is God's character not ruined in the process? 
How is it possible that God can justify the ungodly and still be considered a just judge? How is it that he can declare a person to be righteous when they are not in themselves righteous? How can he let people off the hook? How can he not make them pay the penalty for their sins? Just what if an earthly judge did this? What if someone was charged with a crime and all of the evidence proved beyond a shadow of a doubt the guilt of the accused? And then for some reason, on the day of the trial, the judge simply said, you know, I realize that you're guilty, but I'm feeling pretty generous today. And so contrary to all the evidence and contrary to fact, I am just going to declare you not guilty. Bailiff, take the cuffs off him, he's free. What would you think about such a judge? What if you were part of the family of the victim? What would you think about such a judge? Would you say that such a judge was just? Would you say that the judge had maintained his character? Now think about the ways in which God himself condemns injustice. Think of the way he condemns the unjust judges of Isaiah when he says, Woe to you who acquit the guilty for a bribe, and you deprive the innocent of their right. Or think of the command of Exodus 23, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. God grounds his command for justice in his own justice, that he does not acquit the wicked. If that is the case, how is it that Paul can say, together with David, that God justifies the ungodly? How can he be the kind of judge that acquits the wicked? How does it not compromise his character? How does it not make him an unjust judge? Well, in order to appreciate how God can maintain his justice, we must consider the next two words. First, the word redemption. Paul says that we are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The justifying pronouncement of God only comes through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Well, if the word justification is taken from the sphere of the courtroom, the word redemption is taken from the world of the prison. It's taken from the world of captivity. The word redemption refers to the price that is paid in order to redeem someone from captivity. That's what it means at its most basic idea. It's applied in all kinds of different circumstances, but it refers to a price that is paid in order to redeem someone from captivity. So, for example, uh, it's a term that's often used of the exodus deliverance. Israel was in bondage and in slavery in Egypt. 
and their deliverance, their exodus, is referred to as their redemption. Sometimes the word is used to refer to the release of prisoners, people who were taken captive in war. Sometimes it's used in the context of slave markets, uh, when people's redemption is purchased. It's also used for the redemption of the accused. It's used for those who stand guilty and condemned. There's several interesting examples of this in the Bible. Let me give you one example in Exodus chapter 21. If you had an ox, and your ox, you weren't careful, and you let your ox out, and your ox killed somebody. It gored somebody to death. You were held as guilty and as liable for that death. In fact, not only were you guilty, but the sentence that was due you was the death penalty. And yet God made a provision in the law that a ransom price could be paid to the family of the loved one as a means of your redemption. So that having paid the price, the accused could go free. Then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. When this metaphor is taken and applied to our salvation in Christ, it refers, of course, to that price that Jesus himself paid in order to deliver us from our sins. And it's, it's here, in that price that Jesus pays, that we begin to see the vindication of God's justice. Because God's justice demands that redemption must be accomplished. That there must be a redemption price paid. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The criminal does not just get off scot-free. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card. In God's economy, the penalty must be paid. The debt must be satisfied. Justification is, in fact, a free gift to us, but it is not a free gift. It's a free gift to us, but it's not free. It's costly. And the cost that was paid was the perfect and precious life of Jesus himself. Peter says that we were not redeemed by perishable things like silver or gold. You get the sense that he's completely devaluing these nah, perishable things, silver and gold. You weren't redeemed with silver and gold. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without spot or blemish. Not just any payment would do. Not silver. Not gold. Not the blood of bulls or goats. Not even the blood of another person. The psalmist says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price for his life. For the ransom of their life is costly, and it can never suffice. No mere man could ever satisfy the debt that we owe because our debt is against an infinite creator. No mere man could ever give to God the price of his life. Only the Son of God. Only the one who is not mere man, but God and man in two natures and one person forever could do this. 
And it was God's justice that required this. Okay, but how does this work? How is it that Jesus can redeem sinners? How is it that God might accept his life as a payment for our sins? Well, that brings us to the final word this morning. This word, propitiation. Propitiation is probably the least familiar word of the three. And yet it's a word of such incredible significance that we, we need to understand it. If the word justification is taken from the sphere of what? Of the law court. And the word redemption is taken from the sphere of captivity, slavery, of the prison. This word propitiation is taken from the world of the temple. Propitiation refers to a sacrifice that is given to satisfy or to appease the wrath of God against sin. The word propitiation is used here to fill out and to explain for us the way in which Christ redeems us and the way in which, through his redemption, he vindicates God's justice. It's a word that's taken from the temple. In fact, it's the same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It is the word that is used to describe what we call the mercy seat or the seat of propitiation. Do you know what I'm talking about? The mercy seat? It's the golden lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was that box that was kept in the most holy place of the temple, behind the veil that separated a holy God from his unholy people. And inside of that Ark of the Covenant, inside of that box, that box which was a an earthly representation of God's very throne, what was inside of that box? The Ten Commandments. The law of God. That's why we call it the Ark of the Covenant, because there was the summary of God's covenantal requirements for His people. There was the law that they had broken. No sooner was the law given on the mountain than they were making idols and raging around them. Here in God's throne is the whole discourse of commands that his people had broken. How could God stand over that throne unless a propitiation was made? unless an atonement was made. And so once a year on the Day of Atonement, God made this provision that the blood of an animal would be sacrificed and slaughtered in the place of His people. And that blood would be brought into the most holy place and the high priest would take that blood and he would sprinkle it over the seat of propitiation. And that blood then would form a covering. It was a covering between the holy God and all of the law that his people had broken. That life was given in exchange for his people, temporarily satisfying his wrath. So you see, when Paul says, when Paul says that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, 
you are meant to think of that temple. You are meant to think of that mercy seat, that seat of propitiation that covers over all of the broken demands of God's law. And the cross is the great demonstration of God's mercy. But it is only a demonstration of His mercy because it is a demonstration of His perfect justice. If the cross teaches us anything, it teaches us that God cannot and He will not overlook sins. Sin is such an offense to His absolute holiness and His righteousness that His own justice, His own eternal commitment to righteousness will not permit Him to just let it go. At the cross, God demonstrates that He will not lower His standards for you. God will never lower His standards. But He will meet His standards. He meets His standards in putting forward His own Son to be a propitiation by His blood. Why did God do this? Why did He choose to save in this way? For our redemption, of course, for our redemption. But there's another reason. Verse 25 continues, This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does it mean that he passed over former sins? Some, like Luther, thought that this referred to the sins that we have done in our past. And of course, that is true. Jesus, by his propitiatory sacrifice, forgives all of the sins of our past. I think more likely, however, it's referring to the sins of those who lived before Christ came. Think of that mercy seat. Could the blood of bulls and goats really redeem God's people? Could it really take away sins? Could it really make a satisfaction acceptable enough to appease God's wrath and to please Him? Of course not. So what was happening when God was accepting those sacrifices? What was happening is He was passing over sins. What was happening is an example of his divine forbearance, Paul says, his patience, passing over sins until the fullness of time would come when he would put forth his Son as the propitiation. Our confession puts it this way very helpfully in its chapter on Christ the Mediator. It says, Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought or accomplished by Christ until after his incarnation... Yet the virtue and the efficacy and the benefits thereof were communicated to his elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises and types and sacrifices wherein he was revealed. You see, the law and the prophets were truly bearing witness to this righteousness of God. But now this righteousness of God has been manifest. Now God has put forth His own Son. And it was in order to show His righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God was vindicating his own righteousness in justifying sinners. That is the way, the reason he puts forth his son. And there's one more element to all of this. Because built into this idea of propitiation is necessarily the idea of substitution. That the sacrifice stands as a substitute. It stands in the place of God's people. It's why the sacrifice couldn't be just any sacrifice. You couldn't just take any animal from your flock. It had to be a particular male animal that was without spot that was without blemish, that was perfect. When God puts forth his son as a propitiation, he puts him forward not just as a sinner taken from among sinners, but as the only one who was perfectly without sin, who was himself actually righteous. Just as those sacrificial animals had to be without physical defect or imperfection so that they could stand in the place of sinners. So Jesus had to be without moral defect, without moral imperfection, in order to stand as our substitute. He was, as the author of Hebrews says, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And yet he comes and he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the book. Our Savior is put forward a propitiation not only as one who is holy and innocent, but one who is perfectly righteous. As one who not only never broke God's law, but who always, out of sincere, heartfelt obedience, obeyed him in everything. So that when God justifies us, it is not only that he accounts our sins to Christ and puts him forward as a propitiation, It is that he accounts Christ's righteousness to us. And he counts us as righteous. And all of it in order that he might demonstrate his own righteousness. It was to show that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Why does that matter so much? Why does it matter for us? Why does it matter that in the gospel, uh, the sinner is not only justified, but that God's righteousness is vindicated at the same time? Why is that important? Here's why it matters. It matters because it means that your hope of salvation and your confidence before God are grounded in his unassailable righteousness. Let me say that again. Your hope is grounded in the fact that God will be righteous. The security of your salvation rests in the fact that he is righteous and is the perfectly just judge. Why? Why? Because if he is the perfectly just judge, it means that if he has already accepted the sacrifice of Jesus in your place, it means that he will not punish you again for the same sins that he's already punished. And you can count on that because he's righteous. And so all of your sins of this week, 
All of them. Every inordinate thought. Every misplaced word. Every dirty deed. God will not punish you for them again if you are in Christ because he has already punished them in his son whom he put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That when God looks at you, beloved, he sees the perfect righteousness of his own son. He sees that perfect unassailable righteousness. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, He is here to be received by faith. This righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We will all stand before the throne of God's justice. We will all stand before the judge of all the earth. On that final day, Your righteousness will not avail you because you have none. Paul has said repeatedly, there is none righteous, not even one. And yet God has wonderfully and remarkably provided this way for you to be counted as righteous in his son. And because it comes through faith, it means that you can have this righteous status today. You don't have to do anything right here in this moment. If you look to the Son in faith, you may have this unassailable, righteous standard accounted to you. If you look to faith, look in faith to Christ. Now, I trust that most of you have looked in faith to Christ. To you, I simply say, keep looking. Always keep looking. Your salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. It is in His justifying, redeeming, propitiating work. And so my prayer is that this church, like so many sunflowers, like a whole garden of sunflowers, every morning would face east with our faces toward the sun of righteousness and to see him rise up with light and life and healing. The sun of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings, life and light to all he brings. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank you that the son of righteousness has arisen with light and life and healing in his wings, and we pray that you would cause us by faith to look to Christ and to know that in him we have this standard of your righteousness met. It is through his redeeming, propitiatory work that you can account us righteous in your sight, not for the righteousness in us, but for the righteousness of Christ, that unassailable righteousness that is imputed to us and received by faith alone. 
And so, Lord, make us day after day to turn our faces to the sun. And as we gaze upon your Savior that you have provided, as we gaze upon this perfect righteousness of our King of glory, Lord, we pray that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of him, that we might bear the sweet fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now as we are seated, we are seated at this wonderful feast that our Savior has provided for us during these days of our wilderness journey through this estate of sin and misery. And as we come to the feast and as it's spread before us, we see the most incredible meal that heaven can afford. I so often comment that it is, in the eyes of the world, it's nothing. It's a little crusty piece of bread and a little tiny, tiny glass of wine. You are all going to eat better on Christmas than you will eat here in your flesh. But according to God's providence and power, this is the most amazing meal. Because here you see the grounds of your justification. Here you see the, the redemption price paid by your Savior. Here you see an emblem of that propitiatory sacrifice because he says, this is my body and this is my blood. And they are given for you. This is that substitutionary sacrifice. It represents that perfectly righteous Son of God and what he gives. And the wonder is that having given this sacrifice, what is the fruit of it? You're all invited to the table. You come to the feast with God. God and man are reconciled through this atoning work of Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, if you are resting in Him, then you should come to this meal with joy in your heart, without fear, and know that, that God Himself is inviting you to come. He desires to eat and drink with you. In fact, there is even in this meal a picture of that final meal. Jesus said, I will not eat this meal with you again until I eat it anew in my Father's kingdom. There's another meal coming. There's that marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is a foretaste of it. We get to participate in this. We who have trusted in Christ. Now, this meal is not for everyone. Not everyone has a seat at this table. It's not that the righteous get to come to this table. This is a meal for sinners. But it's that those who have had the blood of Christ covering their unrighteousness, they get to come to this table. And if that is true of you, then you are welcome to join us at this table today. But if you know that's not true of you, if you know that you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you have not looked toward the Son, and I would just simply ask you to let these elements pass you by today. And yet, even as they pass you by today, I pray that it would be a warning to you that on that final day, you must either stand in the vain hope of your own righteousness or you will stand clothed in the perfect, meritorious righteousness of your Savior. 
And so even now, I would call you to faith in Christ. Well, as we come to this table, then, let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, we know that we do not deserve a place at this table. Not one of us here has met the standard of your law and righteousness. And yet, Lord, you are the one who justifies the ungodly and who calls us to come and to eat and to drink with you, who gives us your body for food and your blood for drink. And Lord, we pray that you would, through these elements, encourage our hearts and faith, that you would lift up our downcast eyes once again to the Son of Righteousness, risen with healing in his wings, and that you would bring light and life into our weary souls, that we might walk before you all of the days of our life in the peace of knowing that we have this justifying pronouncement upon us, that we might walk in the freedom of the sons of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, in fact, take these elements, simple as they are, and set them apart for this holy use. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.